All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, as always, very thankful to be able to worship with you and share God's word. Uh, if you're new or visiting, my name is Sam. I'm part of the pastoral staff here. And yeah, if you're joining us, we've been going through a, uh, personally, a very insightful and helpful series through the Sermon on the Mount, if you don't know what that is. It comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7, where Jesus gives kind of the most uh, consolidated and most kind of powerful, impactful sermon that we've ever seen in history. And today, actually, you're joining us in a transition point in the sermon uh, because for the past few weeks, just to recap, I know I'm kind of going straight into it, but it's because I want to get us hit the, gr- hit the ground running with us. Uh, Jesus, what he's been doing is Jesus, he is uh, deconstructing religion, essentially. And a lot of people today are doing this as well. And so I think it's actually very appropriate for us to kind of dig into Jesus' version of this. But the reason he's doing that is because the past couple of weeks in particular, he's talking to a primarily religious Jewish audience who had grown up in the, the church, for lack of better words, had learned the Old Testament and had kind of come up with what it means to be a follower of Jesus and God. And he's deconstructing it because he's saying, hey, in the kingdom of God, unlike what you think, it's a lot more than just behaviors. Uh, and I myself growing up in the church and in a pastor's family, I had a certain understanding and version of what it means to be a good Christian. And I think Jesus takes this sermon and he says it goes far deeper than a type of action or a type of checklist and to-do list, but it goes much deeper to the internal issues of our hearts and minds. And the issues all revolve around ways that we in our sin have taken God's perfect harmonious design for human relationships and flourishing. And we all now, because of our sin and brokenness, contribute to broken relationships. And Jesus' original intention and design for humanity was for harmonious, flourishing peaceable relationships among his people. And so that's why it totally makes sense, just to recap, the past couple weeks we've seen him talk about topics like murder and at the core hatred breaks relationship. We've seen him talk about things like adultery and lust breaks relationship. Last week we talked about the idea of being truthful and not being deceptive or lying because that breaks relationship. So all of these things are tied together by the common thread of the idea that it has to do with relationships. And to kind of sum it all up, I like how one pastor puts it. He says, the reason this is the case is because the highest ethic in the kingdom of God, and it was the most important thing that the kingdom is about and values, is loving, healthy relationships. If you had to sum up what is all of this about, what is the kingdom ultimately about, what is most valuable to Jesus, the king in his kingdom, it is healthy and loving relationships primarily with God and then by extension with one another. And so then it makes sense that the talking points in the sermon is anything that gets in the way of healthy and loving relationships is a big deal to Jesus. And today we're going to kind of get to the crux of what he's trying to get at in this portion. So if you have your Bibles or your programs, let's jump to our text, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start from verse 38 and read all the way to verse 48. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 48. And as you're turning there, again, you're going to see Jesus do... The pattern that he has been doing, which is he's going to reference an Old Testament teaching. And he's going to kind of expand and give a clear understanding of what it really meant to say. And so Matthew chapter 5, starting from verse 38. It's the reading of God's word. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic... Let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's the reading of God's word. Crazy stuff. So I remember when I was growing up as an elementary student, um, I, I mean, nowadays it's pretty understood that being Asian is cool now, right? It wasn't always the case, but for some reason now with the rise of like BTS and like, you know, Asians in Hollywood, you can kind of like take glory and pride in the fact that you're Asian. But even like 10, 20 years ago, when, so when I was in elementary school, it wasn't cool yet. I was very much a minority, not that many Asians, not that many Koreans. And uh, when I first came here, I moved around schools. And in the first grade, I have this very vivid core memory where I experienced a little bit of bullying, okay. Uh, if, if in a, my life map, that's a very like dark moment in life. And basically, I don't think it was necessarily race related, but it was correlated culturally because basically what happened was my mom would dress me up for school. And the way she would dress me up was very Asian, <laughs> if I could put it simply. And the way that manifested one day was she was putting on my clothes and then she put this silk like handkerchief around my neck. No idea why. And it didn't help that it literally looked Asian. I don't know how to describe it to you other than it looks super Asian. It's very obvious. And I protested. I was like, I don't think that's cool. She's like, no, trust me, you got to keep your neck warm because if not, like, you're going to die. You know, they're very extreme like that. So I put it on, went to school, and I distinctly remember there was three guys who kind of ran the recess yard, the cooler ones. They were not Asian, the popular guys. I was just an easy target, right? I'm like this neon Asian, like, you know, handkerchief. So they kind of had nothing to do. So they bullied me, cornered me, pushed me against the wall. And they're like, what is this thing? Like, new kid, you know, where are you from? You know, and then they're like, this is so weird. So one kid, like, untied it, like, threw it on the floor. And then I don't know if you saw inside out, but that bubble, the core memory, like, dropped. Right? And forever I was affected by that, right? And as a first grade, it's hard to process that, right? Like, what's going on? So I remember telling my parents, and, and just to remind you, I grew up in a pastor's family, Korean Christian pastor's family. And so I remember my parents telling me, Sam, immediately they were like, do not fight back. Do not retaliate. In fact, just walk away. You don't want to, to ruffle the waves, right? You don't want to create conflict. And moving forward, in fact, the best thing to do is avoid that kid. He's probably a bad kid, right? So avoid him, uh, and that's the best way forward. And I think what made it complicated is they tied in Christianity to it. Because I actually vaguely remember them referencing the text we read, which is like, you know, Jesus said something like, if somebody slaps you, like, don't slap back or something. And so that was actually my version of understanding this text. I was discipled to believe when you are wronged or when someone does something to you, what Jesus wants is passivity. He wants you to not react, not retaliate. And in fact, the best thing to do is actually just avoid that altogether. So it's a very non-responsive, non-reactive thing. Let me tell you, in hindsight, in light of the text that we just read, this non-retaliatory response seems very noble, but it's not biblical. It's very Asian, right? That's just what it is. It's just very Asian in our non-confrontational culture. But biblically speaking, uh, I think a lot of people have misunderstood what this actually has to say. Because rather than, hey, don't retaliate, Jesus actually goes even a step further and he says, hey, when somebody does something to you like that, not only should you not respond, 
The way you should respond is you should not move away from them. You should move towards that person. So it's even more radical than what I was taught by my parents. And that's kind of what he gets to in verse 38 to 42. Uh, because there's a lot to cover, I can't really get into that portion because I want to get to verse 43 to 48, which I think is the summary and essence of what he's trying to do. But basically what Jesus is saying is when you are mistreated, when somebody does something wrong against you, the natural inclination is to want to get recompense, revenge, and retaliate. But he says in the kingdom, that's not how it is. I think it's obvious this is contrary to how a lot of us feel, right? If somebody punches you, it's not natural to say, I want to hug you. If somebody insults you, it's not natural for you to then want to encourage and uplift them. If somebody hates you, it's not natural for you to then want to reach out to them. And so at the very least, whether you're Christian or not, we can all agree that Jesus' call to this kind of love that he's describing is at the very least otherworldly. Because this world cannot make sense of what Jesus is talking about here, both theoretically and practically. I love how one commentator puts it. He says, looking at this whole section, one appropriate way to describe what Jesus is talking about in his kingdom is it is an ethic from the beyond. It is so otherworldly that it is beyond anything this world can comprehend. Because the standards of this world cannot make sense of the ethic that Jesus is talking about. And the only way to begin to make sense of it how Jesus can even say these things is to get at the heart of the issue, which we're going to do in today's message, which is to really get deep into what does Jesus actually mean when he says to love. Now, I know I risk being stereotypical or overly generic with that, but I really, really think if you tune out saying that, oh, okay, I'm supposed to love others, you're missing the point because Jesus has a very different standard and understanding and definition of what love in his kingdom looks like and acts like. And so to break it down, we're going to look at it in four simple ways. First off, who are we to love in the kingdom of God? Secondly, why should we love in this manner? Three, so what does that look like? What does it mean to do it? And four, how do we do it practically, okay? Very simple. So first, who? Verse 43, look with me. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now Jesus, as he often does, he's essentially quoting a, a teaching that would have been familiar to the Jews. But there's an interesting thing happening here that doesn't happen any other time. And the only way you can catch it is if you look at the actual text that Jesus is quoting from. And it should be up there. Jesus is quoting from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. And this is what it says. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There it is. That's where he's quoting from. You shall love your neighbor. Notice it doesn't say though, hate your enemy. Nowhere in the text does it say hate your enemy. In fact, you can search every single word in the Old Testament. There's no chapter or verse that says that God calls you to hate your enemy. So where is Jesus getting that from? Well, it's important to remember, Jesus doesn't say it is written. He's not addressing scripture. He says you have heard it said. In other words, Jesus is not addressing the words of scripture. He's addressing the interpretation or rather the misinterpretation of scripture. See, what had happened was the Jews naturally in light of this command to love their neighbor, they said, okay, the call to love is clear. So what really, really matters then is who qualifies for this love. Who is this neighbor? This issue comes up front and center when Jesus does the, the, um, the story of the Good Samaritan. He's trying to get them to see, hey, my understanding of neighbor and your understanding of neighbor is vastly different. And the reason he's tackling this here... It's because here's what the Jews did. 
the Jews said, okay, we're supposed to love our neighbor. Let's create boundaries around who that neighbor actually is. And long story short, the Jews concluded neighbor means a fellow Israelite or someone in our community. That's who neighbor is. And so in their minds, God is calling me to love my fellow Jewish community and neighbors, but everyone else, I don't necessarily have to love in this way. In fact, that's where they inserted their own version of, in fact, God actually is okay with us not only not loving those on the outside, but hating them. Because in their mind, they're thinking the ones on the outside are the people like the Romans, the Roman soldiers, the ones who oppressed them, and they were under their oppressive rule. So they're thinking, yeah, any non-Jews, we dislike, we hate. So they subconsciously added that in practice and took God's command to love and did what we often do today, which I'm going to argue. They took the liberty to create boundaries around who was qualified to deserve their love. And they would justify that, therefore, those not qualified on the outside do not get this kind of love. And what Jesus does is he obliterates their boundaries. And look at what he says in verse 44. And every word that comes out of his mouth in this text is radical. He says, I say to you, love not just your neighbors, but love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is prescribing a love without boundaries here. Because it includes those closest in friends and those furthest in enemies alike. This is absolutely radical. Jesus says, in my kingdom, it's not just about loving those in your community, those that share ethnic background, your age group, your social clique. It's not just about loving those you get along with. But that same love you have should extend to the enemies in your life, to those you don't really get along with, to those you may hate, to those who may hate you. In fact, even to those who persecute you, who make it a point to make your life miserable. In fact, I want you to pray for those people. How challenging is that? You see, I'm going to argue, for a lot of us, the issue is not love itself. We don't have a problem with hearing that we're supposed to love. The problem is not that we're supposed to love. The problem is that we need to love those outside the boundaries we create around personality, common interests. Social capacities. You see, Jesus drops a spiritual bomb on all of that and says the, the, the type of love that I have in my kingdom is a boundaryless love, inclusive of all. Now, why would Jesus do this to us? This is an absolutely radical command to give. So what's the explanation? Point number two, why should we love in this way? Uh, so my son Ezra is almost 18 months now. Uh, it's been a joy to see him develop. If you don't know, we have a second son coming in about a month. So I'm really trying to, you know, relish and enjoy this time where he's really a full-blown toddler. And it's crazy to me how he will do certain things or certain mannerisms that kind of is like a carbon copy of what I recall as, from myself as a kid. So for example, if you spend one hour Ezra, you'll be drained because he has nonstop energy. My mother-in-law always says that he doesn't know how to walk because he's literally just running all the time or he's at the very least speed walking. So he kind of bypassed just normal human walking. Uh, from the moment he wakes up, this is kind of one of my favorite things. He'll wake up maybe like 7 o'clock and I'll go in. It's really dark. His white noise is going. And I see his silhouette just holding onto the crib. And the second he feels my presence because it's dark, he can't see, first words out of his mouth 7 out of 10 times is, oh, yeah. <laughs> like he's just ready to take on the day. I kid you not. It's like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, oh, wow. Like this kid is ready to go. Until the second his head hits the, the pillow, well, not a pillow, but like the crib, He's just going, going, going. And I just chuckle because from my memory, and even what my parents tell me, 
that's exactly how I was. Like he is living out the reality and identity of what it means to be Sam Bay's son. Like if he was this calm, reserved boy who just liked to just chill and sit around, I'd be confused. <laughs> There'd be like a disconnect. Well, in a similar way, the underlying reason why Jesus says our love should be boundaryless is because that's the type of love that our heavenly Father has. Look at verse 44 to 45. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, obviously, Ezra doesn't need to do those things to become my son. That's not a qualifier. Rather, he is just living out what it means to be my son. And so in the same way, Jesus is saying, when you love even your enemies and grow to be a generous, gracious person to all, you are living out more accurately and representing your father who is in heaven. Now, we've never seen the father. So how do we know that this is the type of love the father has? And Jesus does something interesting. He says, you want me to prove to you? In a real way, how you know that this is how, who God is as a father? He literally says, look at the weather. Let's look at the weather. Everybody knows the weather. Look at verse 45 again. For he, God, the father, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus is making a very interesting case here. One that is hard to refute. He says, when you simply look at the weather, it shows that God the Father is a generous God because you can have a farmer who is the worst of sinners and cheats and lies his whole life. And you can have a faithful man of integrity who loves the Lord and is godly. And yet, despite that discrepancy, they both get the same type of rain. They both get the same type of sunlight. Not only that, the stuff that Christians get to enjoy in life, the most evil and craziest sinners also get to enjoy it. I get access to delicious ribeye steak, and the sinners and the, those who hate God get access to ribeye steak. And I could go further and further, but basically this is what theologians call common grace. God doesn't withhold his goodness in his current economy, and he doesn't disproportionately dispense out his gifts and generosity based on someone's behavior. He's a gracious father to all, the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. Now, obviously, the Bible is clear. There will come a day and a time when there will be a time of reckoning and judgment and accountability. But right now, the world we live in, God is clearly gracious to all without discrimination. And Jesus says, because that's the Father, that's who is the king of the kingdom, we as citizens and children of the Father are to echo this boundless love. Now, Jesus obviously didn't just talk the talk. That's why in his earthly ministry, you know what confused the religious people the most? Jesus ate with anybody. He ate with everybody. He ate with the vilest of sinners, the scum of society, the adulterers, the pimps. He invited them all. He said, come recline at table with me. He was known as someone who was generous to the tax collectors. Ate with the lowly. Welcome open hospitable arms to all. He was a generous savior. And that confused religious people. Because why? Religious people think there's boundaries to love. And Jesus says, no. Not with me. Because my father in heaven and I'm his son. That's not how it is in my kingdom. And so recap. Disciples who follow Jesus are called to love without boundaries. Friends and enemies alike. Because that is a reflection of the generous father in heaven. Now, it's a little heady, I understand, and theological. So let's get a little more practical number three. So what does that look like? What does it mean 
to love in this way, right? Like if love is really at the core and center of Christianity, I think you really need to make sure that you're on the same page with the Bible and Jesus when it comes to understanding what does that word love actually mean and look like. I hate the word love in English. It's so confusing, so nebulous, so nuanced, so watery. Every other language does a better job of capturing love than English. You know why? If you look at the Greek, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves because he was saying there's at least four, potentially seven different ways and words to describe love because you can't capture it with just one word. There's all kinds of different love and each love is different and unique. So the Bible understands that too. But in English, it just says love. And I hate it. You know why? Because that same word can mean so many different things depending on context. It could be something like preference, like I love boba. It could be like deeper like loyalty, I love my family. It could be something fluctuating and emotive, like I love the Lakers, but tomorrow I will hate them. It could be something just broad and hazy, like oh, I just love taking naps. So it's not concrete. And so you got to think, if this is really the core and epicenter of Christianity, you can't just get by with a hazy understanding of what that means. That's literally the crux of what it means to be a kingdom citizen. And so let's establish clearly the word and concept Jesus talks about here is, you might have heard it before, agape. We're going to do a mini dive on agape. The word agape refers to the love of God himself. The unconditional, sacrificial, supernatural love that God himself is characterized by and flows from him. One way to understand agape love, please follow this definition because it's so countercultural. It is much more a decision of the will rather than is motivated by emotion or feeling. Agape love is a decision of the will. There's a pastor named Pastor Tim Mackey. I think he does a really good job with this. He explains and he defines agape love clearly cannot be an emotional thing. Because that would mean that what Jesus is saying is when somebody slaps you in the face, you need to well up warm fuzzy feelings for that person. He's like, oh, I love you so much. That makes no sense. That's not reasonable or practical. Or someone persecuting you and your family making you miserable. I think the modern definition of love would say, oh, but I feel so like sentiments and warm towards them. Absolutely not. That's not realistic. And so rather, I like how he breaks it down in the show behind me. He says, there's two things linked together that help you understand agape love. First is, agape love is defined by a certain attitude that you have. A certain attitude or mindset. And from that attitude then flows concrete action. So agape love is kind of characterized by this two-part interrelated idea that there is a certain attitude that you believe and adopt, which leads to concrete action. That's how you understand agape love. Let me give you a simple illustration of this. This morning, Ezra woke up very early multiple times. Affected everything. I was very tired. Right? I was like doing a touch-up on my sermons and I had to go in and out of sermon mode because he was crying. Now let me tell you this. When he woke up at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., at 4 a.m. when Ezra woke up and I saw, I saw the monitor, I did not look at Ezra and have warm, fuzzy feelings. I was like, oh, I love my son, how he just wakes up in the middle of the night and disrupts my peace. I just love that. I love that. Absolutely not. I was tired, irritated, frustrated, angry. But you know what I did? I loved him. I went to him, hugged him, picked him up, later made him breakfast, 
So you see, what really is love? Here's another example. Say there's someone you have a hard time getting along with. To agape love them is not to force yourself to suddenly say and trick yourself to say like, actually, I really do like that person. That's what Jesus wants me to do. Actually, I really enjoy spending time with that person. That's fake. And you're then not disobeying what was talked about last week. You're not being truthful. Instead, within the bounds of the definition, to agape someone you don't get along with is to first and foremost adopt an attitude towards that person, which is this. I feel this way, but how does God view this person? What's the attitude that I should have as someone who understands God views this person as beloved? They're created in the image of God. And with that attitude and understanding flows now a decision to concretely act upon that attitude, which is, even though it's really uncomfortable for me, I'm going to choose to treat that person as someone who is loved and worthy of care. That's what it means to agape. This is challenging. It's a quote from Pastor Tim Mackey. He says this. He says, if I'm a disciple of Jesus, I don't have the right or the authority to treat someone as unloved when Jesus has treated them as someone who is loved. In the kingdom, I don't have the right to deny someone kindness and generosity when Jesus gave his life and died for that person. So I choose to adopt that attitude. That's the logic. You understand, you're, you're superseding your kingdom authority when you're taking someone who Jesus has deemed worthy and beloved and you act contrary to that. And so agape love is despite how I feel, I know what I believe. Now let's make it clear, way easier said than done. You see, there's a category of what I like to call easy love. That actually sounds really dirty, but <laughs> easy love, where actions flow much more naturally. There are plenty of situations where we'll do things just because we feel like it. For example, if we're hanging out with a group of friends who share our interests, they like you, you like them, it's not hard to love them, it's very easy. And what I would say is you do not have to even have an inkling of agape love for those types of situations. In fact, Jesus goes in deep to that and he says, there's nothing Christian about that kind of love. Look at verse 46 and 47. I love it. He just like shoves it in your face. He says, look, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. He's saying even the dirtiest of sinners in society are able to love those who love them back. Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. And this is why in a world kind of where love is defined by feeling, emotion, and vibes, this is why cliques form. Cliques form because we see people that we like, we see people that make us happy, and without even being asked to, we gravitate towards them. And in the same way, we see people that we don't really like, or that don't make us feel good, and we gravitate and stay away from them. This is how the social gravitational pull of the world works. Nobody teaches you that. You don't have to choose to do that. It just kind of happens, right? That's what a gravitational pull is. If you're not intentional, you will get pulled towards that. But the agape love that the Bible calls us to, it is to choose and decide to go against that natural gravitational pull and choose to operate of an entirely different set of values, namely that of the kingdom and not of the world. And what Jesus is saying is contrary to what this world might believe and tell us, you never really begin to love until you begin to decide to love despite how you feel. And that's scary because some of us have not practiced an ounce of love in months. That's what Jesus is saying. 
You don't really love someone until all of your natural feelings and inclinations are telling you the opposite. That's agape love. And this is a hard pill to swallow. Um, I remember I was sermon prepping and I was showering and I was so broken about this reality because I think you kind of have to humble yourself to really embrace this. But if you're always with people that you like and you naturally get along with, of course it's easy. It's easy to be kind. It's easy to be generous. But what Jesus is saying, point blank, is that at the root of that kind of love is self-centeredness. Absolutely selfish. You know why? Because you're not really loving the person. You're not loving the other person. You're loving yourself. You love yourself. And that's really the heart of the issue, isn't it? The kingdom of God's original design for humanity was a relational flourishing predicated on a selflessness that genuinely prioritized the other above the self. Why? That's who the king is. God is a king who genuinely gives of himself freely. And what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom is a literally radical, otherworldly, alternative community where the children and people of God collectively pursue selflessness, boundaryless love in a world caught up in self-centeredness. And that's where Jesus, he says something very interesting to close this portion in verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now that word perfect is very triggering for me as an Asian. When I think perfect, I think no errors, no mistakes. I think like SATs. I think like scores and things like that. So it's really all about like a certain standard or, you know, having the perfect righteousness. Let me ask you, like, as a Christian, if you're sitting here today, what is the perfect human? Think about that. What does that look like? I'm willing to bet a lot of us it means like you're like this ultra super godly person who is just kind of like floating in your holiness, right? Never sin, never struggle, never lust, never tell a lie. Now here's the irony though. If your picture of perfection was an individual detached from relationship, you totally do not know what perfection is, according to this. Because the word perfect here actually translates to carry the idea of something being complete, something being mature, okay? So it's not necessarily the idea of like utter righteousness. It's the idea that something has has reached its intended completion and purpose. Silly illustration. When I crack open a pack of ramen, right, and I'm cooking it, I pop the egg in, I let it in there sit, and I take the lid off, and it's just ready to be eaten, it's perfect. Stupid illustration, but you see what's important to me in life, right? It means it's completed its intended design. Now, Jesus is saying perfection in humanity in the sense of God's original design is someone who exemplifies and is filled with his agape love. That's the perfect human. That's why all across John's writings, it says, when you have love, you are children of God because God is love. When you love one another, people begin to see the kingdom because the kingdom is it's ruled by a king of love. That is perfection in the kingdom of God. So in context, what Jesus seems to be getting at is this. When one of his children intentionally decides to step over a relational divide, as uncomfortable as that might be, or to, to open up the boundaries of natural social barriers, or to go against the natural inclination to want to be exclusive and instead to agape and concretely, concretely decide, I'm going to be generous, 
I'm going to be kind to someone, especially someone who's outside my circle, maybe even an enemy. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're this close to perfection in terms of being a mature human. Why? Because when you do that, you are most like God. You know, religious people need to hear that. I think we think we're most like God when we're in Bible studies, when our heads are getting filled with theology, when we're going on these mission trips, which is a lot of times self-serving because we just want to feel good about ourselves. Little do you know, perfection is in the context of relationship, according to Jesus. Our priorities are off for a lot of us. Like the Jewish people, we've made it about rules and commands when Jesus says it's about loving your neighbor. Do you do that? You see, to deny ourselves the comfort of drawing boundaries, which is so easy to do around our love, and instead to cultivate a posture of agape love, that is when you are closest to the beating heart of God. That's what it means to be Christian. And there's a reason Jesus puts it last, because it is hard to do. But it's so important. That's why Jesus says to all these Pharisees who try to make Christianity about this and that and this and that, he says, it's a very simple Every single command and law written in scripture hangs on this healthy love for God and love, healthy love for one another. Everything else hangs on that. Now, I want to give a couple practical applications because, you know, if you're like me, like, okay, if I feel the spirits telling me this is what I got to do, how do we actually do that? There's four really quick applications that come from the text. Number one, sounds kind of weird, but it's first is you have to identify your enemy. Here's what I mean by that. If the call is to love your enemies, if you don't have any enemies, you have no one to love. Now, first, we all have enemies. We just have to be humble enough to admit that we have them. You see, a lot of us, we like to tell ourselves, everybody's cool with me, everybody loves me, and if somebody has an issue with me, they're the issue. <laughs> That's just how we're wired as really, like, prideful, self-centered people. Now, maybe you don't have explicit enemies, but I'm going to argue contextually, enemy can be defined as anyone outside your boundaries of love. It could be potentially even your spouse in this season. It could be people in the church that for whatever reason you have placed on the outside of your boundaries of love. Or it could simply be that you have isolated and insulated yourself so narrowly and so tightly to only those that are easy to love that you have absolutely stifled any opportunity to practice this kind of agape love that Jesus describes. You leave no room for it whatsoever. You have such a tight-knit, easy love community. Whatever the case is, step one, identify and repent of the boundaries that you set in your love. Because it's not of God and it's not of the kingdom. Number two in the text, pray for those who are hardest to love. Verse 44, Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Obviously, one thing for someone to be outside your boundaries, to be an enemy, it's altogether different if they're literally opposed to you. They are out to get you, persecuting you. Back then it was very visceral and physical. Today it might not be physical, but it could be relational. It could be social. And I love Jesus. He's very in touch with reality. He doesn't say, hey, you know that person that's making your life miserable and is trying to get you? Just go and love them and hug them. He doesn't say that. He understands it's not easy. But he does what he does say is you got to pray them. Pray for them. Pray that God through his spirit still enables you to maintain the kingdom attitude to see them the way that he does. Pray that God softens your heart. And it may take weeks, it may take years, but I am absolutely biblically convinced an agape disciple is a praying disciple. If you are not a praying disciple, you cannot be an agape disciple because you're not an agape person. 
you need to pray that the Spirit would help you and convict you of this. This is literally what we see Jesus do on the cross. So challenging. Like, have you considered it? If you're on the cross and somebody's there as you're bleeding out with a hammer and a nail, literally driving a nail into your feet, you know what I would be thinking? A lot of curse words. <laughs> like this, beep, beep, beep. You know what Jesus says? Father, forgive this guy. He doesn't know what he's doing. Stephen the martyr preaches the gospel. They get so enraged. They get pick up stones and they're killing him and they're stoning him. And he doesn't say, you guys will get yours one day. Or Lord, judge these people. He says, God, don't hold this against them. Could you imagine? Like someone makes your life miserable. Unfairly gossips about you. Has done nothing but inflict pain in your life. And you come before the Lord and you say, God, it's so hard. But I know you still love this person. Even though it's hard for me to feel that way right now. Can you help me to want their, their blessing? Want what's good for them? Show an ethic from beyond. That's the best way to put it. Makes no human sense. Thirdly, this is the hardest one. Um, but it's in the text. Meet the practical needs of your enemies. I know that sounds weird. But I think as the text says, God meets the practical needs of friends and enemies alike. He gives sunshine. He gives rain. And if you're like not convinced by that, in Romans chapter 12 verse 20, Apostle Paul elaborates and literally says, Christian, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. Why? Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I'll be very honest, I have no idea what that looks like. <laughs> I know what it's saying, but I don't know what it looks like. But let me kind of nuance it a little bit in light of what our church has been doing more recently. Maybe it's not meeting the practical needs of your enemies per se, but maybe it is putting yourselves in positions to meet the needs of those outside your boundaries. Perfect example of this, our church's desire to partner with something like Olive Crest. It was a, a very interesting sight to see. Here's why. Our church, I could tell a lot of people, our boundaries are really rock solid. We don't really talk to or engage people outside of our circles. Because when we got to the event at Olive Crest, it was literally like a gravitational pool where all of our church people would literally just flock together. It just happened. Because we're just so used to that. It's just a gravitational pool of comfort, what we're used to, the boundary lines. And I think what Jesus would say is when you grow in agape, when you go to an event like that and you see people outside your boundaries, it is not a, a, a motive to want to now recoil away. It is an excitement to want to move toward because why? An opportunity to love, an opportunity to serve. And so could you imagine if 20 people at Grace Hill go in the future for like an Olive Crest event and we're like, boom, let's go. And we just scatter because we're seeking to do that. Why? Because we relish opportunities to meet the needs of those outside of our boundaries. When a church loses sight of this and no longer values this, the church is no longer looking like the kingdom. And then lastly, most practically, this one I purposely put in there because it condemns us all. Because you cannot have an excuse for this one. And it's in the text. Most practical, greet someone outside of your tribe. Now, where do I get this from? In the text says, Jesus says, if you only greet your brothers, which means even in who you greet, you can be agape love. Who you say hello to. If you get super practical, you know what this could look like? It could mean on your way to church, you're saying, Jesus, today I want to practice agape love. I'm going to greet one person outside of the boundaries I normally have. That's it. I'm just going to greet them. Every pastor will tell you, if the 10 minutes after worship, 
the church has an intentionality to practice this kind of agape love and to go outside the boundaries just to greet and mingle with each other, it would radically transform the church. Guaranteed. Nobody does it. So you know what they do? They say, okay, not 10 minutes, 5 minutes. 5 minutes is too long. Okay, 3 minutes. And then I see new campaigns. You know what it says? It says 90 seconds, church. Just 90 seconds of agape love. We can do this. It's just, it's ridiculous. If we can't even do that, why would anybody outside of our boundaries be, be enticed or even want to be attracted to the king of the kingdom? It is a concrete, intentional, decisive love. You know what that means? It means agape never happens on accident. You'll never just randomly agape. You choose to do it. Because that's who your heavenly father is. Now to close, it's going to be a little uncomfortable, but I want us to have a mental exercise. I want you to try to think of one person in your life right now that is really hard to love. Okay, think about that person. Don't say it. Don't look at them. Okay. Don't make it more uncomfortable than it needs to be. Think of one person that's really hard to love. Maybe it's someone in the home. Maybe it's a coworker, someone in your friend group. Maybe someone in this church. Maybe someone you saw this morning. Now I'm going to take it even deeper. As you think about that person who's hard to love, think about what is it about them that makes them so hard to love. Oh, so easy to do, right? Everything. It's like the way they breathe. The way they move, the way they smell. Isn't it crazy how we can literally like hate someone so much, right? And, and as you're doing that, notice the feelings you have, right? The feelings of like irritation, frustration, annoyance. Uh, definitely a desire to want to stay away from that person. Now I want you to shift that mental picture to yourself. And now ask, in light of that person being so hard to love, there's 10 billion things that's so hard to love about them. Do you think on the contrary that you are so easy to love? Think about that. Like I'm such a, I'm so, I'm way more lovable. People can never have an issue with me. Isn't it ironic that we can find so many issues wrong with people and reasons why they're so hard to love, but the person we are so free to show grace and mercy to is myself, ourselves. Newsflash, you are harder to love anyone else in this room and you know that because you know yourself. And if you're like, who said that? Tell me who said that. I'll tell you who said that. Jesus said that. He proved it. You see, until you're humbled by the spirit of the gospel, that the enemy Jesus is talking about is first and foremost you. You cannot mature as a human. Because the heart of agape love is rooted in the gospel. And despite our sin and despite the fact that we are the enemies... We want nothing to do with God. He concretely said, I love my people. I will move towards them. I will concretely pour out my sacrificial love on the cross to make my enemies my friends. Uh, I, I want to speak particularly to the people. I know there's some people in here, you feel like you're outside the boundaries of God's love. And you may have good reason to feel and believe that. And what today what we see is you're not. You cannot be outside the bounds of a boundless love. And when that registers that we have been shown and we are still shown so much agape love, that in turn fuels us to do the same for others. And I challenge you, really humble yourself before God. I was, I, so the shower is where the Lord meets me, okay. That's just like my zone. When I, when I sermon prep, I'm in the shower. And I was genuinely asking God, God, 
can you expose how hard it is to love someone like me? And there was so many things. Like, I prefer things over God. I really don't care about him at times. I value the stupidest things over him sometimes. I make Christianity all about me. And he was just raining down these things. And it was so humbling to realize, like, oh, man, but I'm within bounds. I'm still safe. The gospel proves that. And so that being said, the beauty is, you know, God, even though you can't see him, the scriptures are clear. What makes his agape love tangible, not only to those in the church, but especially to those outside the church, is God often uses the agape love he has that flows through his people to reflect who he is to all people. And so uh, with that moment, I want to invite the praise team up. And I want to invite us to take a moment to reflect and pray. And just a couple of things to maybe um, help us to reflect in light of this sermon and this text. Uh, how has your agape love been these days? Like when's the last time that you as a disciple of Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian today, like you chose to love? Like despite all your inclinations and how you feel, you said, man, my father, he, he is a generous, boundless, loving God. I want, I want to practice that. Is there anyone in your life right now that God may be tugging you to love in this way despite how you feel? Maybe it's something as simple as can you pray for that person? Others of you, maybe it's while you're so insulated and something as simple as, hey, just greet someone outside the bounds is so challenging. Maybe that's what you need to do. And if you're not a Christian or if you're exploring, I, I really challenge you, find a love like this. There's always boundaries in this world. That's why the only way you can find a love so all-encompassing is you need to get outside of this world. That's why King Jesus is a king that came from beyond. He came from heaven down to earth. So let's take a moment to reflect and pray, and then I'll close for us.